So my name is Matthew Engelke, uh, and I teach here in the anthropology department and also coordinate the um, Forum on Religion. Um, it's a real pleasure to uh, be introducing this event, uh, which brings together uh, three uh, experts on uh, economic anthropology, really, um, but who can speak to these issues of uh, redemption and uh, more religious themes in very interesting ways. And, uh, of course, the, the priest will make sure that uh, they do that. Um, <laughs> So I just I, I just want to set the um, set the context a bit for uh, what what uh, what the panelists will be speaking about tonight, and it's really just to emphasize something that I think many anthropologists would uh, certainly accept, which is that money money is never just money. It's true that money often allows for the bypassing of certain social relations and expectations. I can complain about a meal at a restaurant in a way that I cannot complain about a meal served to me by a friend. Because at a restaurant, we would say, we're paying for it. We're using money, and this absolves us of certain social bonds and obligations. Yet anthropologists, sociologists, and many others have long emphasized that money is not an asocial thing, not a neutral medium of exchange. Money conveys meanings, as Keith Hart reminds us. And the meaning of money itself tells us a lot about the way human beings make the communities we live in. That's Keith Hart. Now, the topic of tonight's discussion hones in on one of the most intractable problems of money in this respect, its moral loadings. Or, more precisely still, its moral instability. What our distinguished panel will address is one crucial question of this instability, the question of money and its redemption. Now, this is a pressing question as ever, not least in today's world in which all sorts of money, blood money, drugs money, oil money, or any number of other questioned qualified forms get put to use for good causes, the wing of a new hospital perhaps or mosquito netting for communities in Central Africa, or, say, university scholarships for students from disadvantaged backgrounds. In short, the crux of such situations might be formulated as simply as, can bad money be made good? And if so, what are the mechanisms by which this takes place? How is the process of redemption legitimated? Now, the first definition of redemption in the Oxford English Dictionary is, quote, the action of freeing a prisoner, captive, or slave by payment, end quote. Now, while this general sense of freedom is certainly going to be relevant to the discussion, we are convened here, as I mentioned at the outset, as part of the Forum on Religion, and the panel is being chaired quite deliberately by a philosopher-priest, Giles Fraser. Giles, as many of you will know, is also a columnist at The Guardian and the former canon chancellor of St. Paul's. He's also a visiting professor here at the LSE in the program for the study of religion and non-religion. Now, it is indeed the Christian or even post-Christian meaning of redemption that we might use as a point of departure for the deliberations, taking the third definition in the OED in mind. Quote, expiation or atonement for a crime, sin, or offense. 
But this is not to say the discussion will be guided by or restricted to the OED's rendering of theology. David Graeber, professor of anthropology here at the LSE, is well known to the public as a leading exponent on debt and, more recently, bureaucracy. To those of us who read more stuffy, peer-reviewed anthropology articles and books, however, he's equally well known for his fieldwork in Madagascar on politics, magic, and the legacies of slavery. Although somehow uh, David is never stuffy uh, in his writing, even in peer-reviewed journals. Laura Baer, another of my colleagues here in the anthropology department, has worked in India for over 20 years, most recently on how austerity has affected the port workers on the Hooghly River, and has paid particular attention to the ethical concerns austerity has raised. Bill Maurer, professor of anthropology and law, dean of social sciences, and director of the Institute for Money, Technology, and financial inclusion is at the University of California, Irvine. He is a leading expert on, among other topics, Islamic banking and alternative currencies, the latter very much driven by the idea that money, as we know it, is never just money, but in a way, never just, that is to say, never right and fair. Now, the format for tonight's event is as follows. Each of the three panelists will be asked to offer a brief set of reflections on the theme of money and its redemption, of how we should understand the question of whether bad money can be made good, or perhaps whether we can even speak of good and bad in these ways. Giles will then chair a more open-ended conversation amongst the panelists, offering his own observations as well. And at at half past seven, uh, Giles will then field questions from the floor. So thank you for joining us this evening, and now join me in welcoming tonight's speakers. Thank you for that introduction, Matthew. Tonight I want to make a radical point. And this point is that our question, the question that we're thinking about today, of can bad money be made good, I'm going to suggest that this is a problematic question, a limited question. It's a question that's unlikely to produce good results in the world. And I'm going to suggest that rather than um, reflecting on this question, that we replace this question with two more fundamental questions. And these are questions that arise from uh, the popular Hinduism practiced by the shipyard workers with whom I've lived and worked with in Calcutta in India during recent years. And these two more fundamental questions are, are the relationships that generate money good And how can money create more just relations? So the focus amongst the shipyard workers, their focus, is on the evaluation of society, on a social calculus. Whereas our focus, the focus of our question tonight and the theme of redeeming money, um, has a very different kind of focus. It focuses less on the social relations and more on the object of money itself. And, of course, this takes particular practical forms, this redemption of money through the conversion of tainted money into charitable works. 
In its most recent incarnations, this conversion involves the transformation of corporate profits through social enterprise and CSR towards the good. This is known in business language as doing good and doing well. And where I work in India, this language has been spreading more widely and these practices have been spreading more widely after the introduction of the 2013 Indian Companies Act, which mandates all companies to use 2% of their net profits in the previous three years for CSR projects. So this theme of redeeming money exists in the context of India and exists here, but I'm going to suggest that it's a limited way of looking at these issues. So why am I suggesting that our theme and our question is problematic and limited? Well, I think it's problematic and limited because it contains a key assumption. It treats money like a person, more specifically like a Christian person on a path in time. It's as if money carried the stain of the past, of a past sin, that can be redeemed by another good act in the present. But money, of course, is not a person on a life course. It's a product of a social relationship, and it generates further social relationships. It's a kind of social energetics. So it's only by using it to equalize the immoral social relations that it's been part of that we could make a difference. The recycling of 2% of profits through CSR would not really redeem anything. Um, We would have to look at how profits were gained in the first place, whether they were involved in the informal economy, the unfair informal economy, for example, in India, what forms of market speculation they were associated with and how how those were affecting society. But these issues are really obscured by treating money as a person and cloaking, in fact, secular acts of philanthropy in a Christian language. So I want to suggest that our question and theme tonight is flawed, It gives an aura of Christian goodness to acts of philanthropy without necessarily producing social justice. So how might we go beyond this? How might we see money differently and generate a more radical morality? And I'm going to turn to contemporary forms of popular Hinduism to suggest ways that we might do this. Hinduism, in both its present and its ancient forms, judges money by the relations it produces and manifests in the world. It's somewhat more this-worldly than Christianity. (coughs) Now, this can have negative effects, and in the past, in Indian society, it's had very negative effects in situations where high-caste groups have seen money as good if it reproduces their own purity and status. But it can also have a positive series of effects because it means that attention is paid to present social relations and how they're affected by money. So it contains a grain of radical potential. And it's this grain of radical potential that I see among the shipyard workers that I work with in Calcutta who work really in precarious work as day labourers in the austerity economy on the Hooghly River. They're constructing vessels for both private and public sector agencies in very dangerous, risky and uncertain environments. So how do the most exploited in an austerity economy evaluate money? Well, they suggest that their suffering is due to something that they call the rule of the burning of the stomach. 
and that this is ruling within society. And this burning of the stomach is the individualistic desire that's let loose by money that corrodes mutuality and respect and causes their suffering. And they see evidence of all around them in the form of corruption amongst politicians, union officials acting as brokers for their informalized sector work, and for the shipyard owners' fortunes rising while theirs decline and their bodies age and become weak. And they suggest that this rule of the stomach can be, and the burning of the, spool, the burning of the stomach can only be overcome if it's contained by the moral good of life-giving reciprocal exchanges associated with Hindu worship and kinship relations. And they suggest that the city should be joined in secular versions of these kinds of exchanges between allies to produce a commonwealth of mutuality and respect so that we all live with dignity and we produce more forces of life in the world. So money could only be good if it was generated from and used to produce such relations of equality. So this is a social calculus of money. So how would these men respond to our question and our theme of can bad money be made good? They would suggest, quite obviously, that it could only be made good if it was redistributed to its point of origin to undo the unequally moral relations from which it was generated in the first place and to produce greater forms of mutuality. So the 2% of profits that are now going to CSR in India would not be enough. What we would need would be a redistribution to the 94% of workers in the informal sector in India, among whom these shipyard workers are, from which profits were created in the first place. And this might, they would suggest, be a radical redemption for money. Well, um, my, my talk actually has a title, um, which is odd for a five-minute talk. But um, I've never had a talk in Latin, a uh, title in Latin for it, so it's actually called Pecunia Non Olet, um, which means money doesn't stink. Uh, it's an expression which um, I think we're reading in Suetonius's Life of the Emperor Vespasian. Uh, Vespasian was a sort of notorious skinflint emperor uh, who put a tax on public toilets. Um, and his, his son, Titus, um, objected to this. It sort of isn't this beneath the dignity of an emperor to be collecting money based on excrement? Um, and you know, those, according to the story, his father held out a gold coin and said, does it smell? You know, um, money has no smell. And uh, the, the joke was on him, actually, because to this day, public toilets in Italy and France are still called Vespasians. Um, so, you know, it shows the degree to which, actually, these things do catch. Um, and um, kind of, it's interesting, um, these tricks with names and what catches and what doesn't. It always reminds me of the story of Herostratus. Um, apparently burned down the temple of Artemis at Ephesus, uh, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, of course. Um, and when people asked him why he did so, he said, so people would remember my name. So, so they passed a law saying it was illegal to ever say his name. But, you know, it didn't work, right? Because here I am talking about him. Um, so, so there was a whole economy of names and me- names being remembered for good or for ill uh, in the ancient world. Um, and a lot of it was caught up peculiarly with issues of, of personal honor. Um, it's 
I thought about this because there's a question of why it is we th- why it is we think about money at all when it comes to these kind of issues. Most of the issues, you know, when we think about bad money, dirty money, what we are actually thinking about is bad deeds. Um, people who got money through doing things which we consider evil, unethical, immoral. Um, why is it, therefore, that, that the, the pollution is seen as sticking to the money? And, and it seems to me that one reason is because there's a tension within the very idea of what money is. Um, as Keith Hart was the first to point out, and I tried to develop um, in my own work on debt, you know, even economists are, are completely torn about what money is. You'd think if there's one thing that economists would have consensus about is money, but no, actually, there's, there's no common definition. And, and one reason for that is because... Um, you know, money in most times and places is sort of is always simultaneously both a credit arrangement, a social arrangement between people, a way of account, uh, and an abstract unit of account, and you know a physical object. And there's periods of time where the weight shifts one way or the other. Um, so in certain periods, it's more a credit arrangement, and the actual gold and silver is is, is usually cached away somewhere and just used as a point of reference. In other periods, it's actually circulating. Periods where the gold and silver or other precious metals are actually are assumed to be money and actually used as such tend to be periods marked by war and violence and, and dirty deeds. Um, in fact, you know, for much of history, an act actual gold bullion is sort of the equivalent of the the a drug dealer's suitcase full of unmarked bills. You know, it's untraceable. The whole point of money is you don't know where it's been. Um, no, it's something everybody desires, uh, even though they have no idea where it's coming from, and that's probably all for the best that they don't. Um, whereas, of course, a credit arrangement is exactly the opposite. It's entirely based on personal trust so that your capital becomes identified with your honor as a person. So money is both of these things simultaneously. There's a t- terrible contradiction between it. It's both something that is, in a certain sense, anonymous um, and powerful in a sort of scary way for that very reason and something which is deeply identified with the person holding it to the point of being their very um, sense of of honor integrity such as the honor of the emperor that Titus was complaining about. Um, And you wonder, this sort of logic goes, you know, even occurs in places where money has been recently uh, in that Abstract, um, quantify, purely quantifiable form has been relatively recently introduced. Um, so you have Vespasian compl- um, and his money based on public urinals. Then there's um, the concept of the money of shit, uh, for originally came immediately came to mind among the newer, um, who often had were forced to get jobs emptying uh, bucket latrines um, in, in towns. And there was a rule that you couldn't use money uh, got through shit to buy cows. Interesting that the phrase pecunia non olipis pecunia actually originally meant cows, right? So the, even the Latin word for money goes back to the word for cows. So literally that means cows don't smell, which is not even true. Um, but uh, So money got through shit should not be used to buy cows among the newer. Um, and this is somewhat of a free associative um, talk, but that's okay because we're opening up a discussion, um, immediately made me think of the... Co- Circumstance which the newer became famous for anthropologists, um, which was the work of Evans Pritchard. I'd always uh, been fascinated by, the, the, if you read the very beginning of, of Evans Pritchard's work on the newer, he has this uh, introduction about, he uh, calls it neurosis, um, how the newer basically drove him crazy. And it show, he shows up in this village called Muat Deet, and no one will talk to him, and everybody's incredibly evasive and gives him wrong directions, and it takes forever for him to like, break through and get any information. He can't figure out why. 
later when I, I researched the history of the moment, it turns out that the people he was studying were followers of a prophet named Gwek, who had, um, had, had um, the British government was convinced were rebelling against them. They built this giant pyramid, uh, which they, the British colonial authorities kept trying to blow up. And ultimately, Winston Churchill had decided that terror bombing from the air was going to be really important in the next big wars. So they decided to try it out on the Newark and mowed down a whole bunch of followers of Gwek and then forcibly reload. And I was reading the account of this. Um, the Newark was saying, yes, and then they massacred all these people and all these cows, and finally they took the survivors and relocated them to this place called Muat-Dit. Um, it was exactly where Evans Pritchard showed up two years later and no one would talk to him. Um, but but the, um, but when I was reading this, there was another thing when I, I was going through the introduction, which struck me as very interesting. It actually begins, and I'd like to thank the Leverhulme Foundation for fu- funding this research. It turns out that Evans Pritchard had basically been got by the um, British colonial authorities. He was trying to study witchcraft and magic among the Azande, and all these people kept bugging him to do, uh, essentially to send him in as a spy to figure out what these prophets were really about. And he didn't want to do it, but they managed to swing him this big grant. And um, he wrote a book where he essentially... Um, didn't do what he was asked to do and had one page on the prophets, but tried in general to moderate the colonial behavior by describing um, the society uh, in such a way that he felt would be in the interest of the newer themselves. Um, but the interesting thing about the Leverhulme Foundation, I was wondering, where does that money originally come from? And I did a little research on that, and I discovered something very interesting, that like Leverhulme Foundation funds all sorts of uh, anthropological research in Africa. When I first came to this country, everybody said, oh, you know, in England they got these amazing five-year Grants like Lever Home try apply for that. Um the most famous single grant. Um, so I looked it up and it turns out that Lord Leverhom um was the founder of Unilever Soap. And um, his big innovation is he got the idea of using palm oil instead of tallow and soaps. Um, but he was also a good friend of King Leopold of Belgium. Um, and essentially, you can see where this is going, right? Um, it turns out that it, the way that he made the fortune, which the Leverhulme Foundation then distributed, was through slave labor in the Congo. Um, essentially, they set up this giant palm oil uh, plantation. He was given 178000 acres by King Leopold to do it on. Um, thousands of people died in the process. So, so basically this money is coming from the very heart of the greatest colonial atrocity in Africa, which is then used um, to fund Evans Pritchard to go out and spy on the newer by the colonial authorities, um, but which produces the greatest ethnography, you know? Uh, we really have an anthropology. Um, so is this the redemption of money or not? Um, I, it's, it's an interesting question, uh, because it shows us how much, you know, the very forms of knowledge by which we ask these questions is entirely entangled in, in these sort of questions. So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll throw that out as, um, as a sort of open-ended question. Excellent. Um, let me just also thank uh, Matthew for bringing us all together. It really is a, a pleasure to be here. I'm going to start um, by speaking from my role as an academic administrator. Um, it was mentioned that I'm serving as the Dean of Social Sciences right now at the University of California at Irvine. And in that role, fully 50% of my time, 50%, is meant to be on fundraising. 
um, this has been a rather unusual crash course into the lives of the rich and not so famous. Um, but one of the, the parts about the job that actually drives me crazy, it's not so much having to um, hobnob with people I'd rather not hobnob with or keep my, my, my mouth quiet when things are said that I can't believe I'm hearing. No, the thing that drives me crazy is a bureaucratic thing. And that's that very often I'm in the position of having to decide whether funds coming into the university constitute a gift or a grant. Okay? Um, the difference is that um, a grant, something that is defined as a grant, at least in the University of California where I work, a public institution, always has to have deliverables. Okay? Mean, and all these words are just in quotation marks, right? Forgive me for speaking this kind of language, but um, there have to be deliverables if it's a grant, which means that um, the funder is expecting something to come back in return, whether it's a research report or even, even if it says that um, these funds are going to support an anthropology student's dissertation and, and it's expected that the student complete. Okay? If it's open ended, that maybe the student's not going to complete. Then it's a gift, because there's no deliverable that's specified. Um, so there's an interesting thing there, right? That, that a gift is something um, that needs to be freely given. There can't be conditionalities tied to whatever outcome of the money coming in might be, right? This is very, very much in the sense of there being a kind of a free gift here. A grant has deliverables that are returned. Um, a gift does not. However there is a bit of a paradigm shift going on in philanthropy, at least in the United States, I'm sure here as well, where we are told that um, donors increasingly want to, and again, these words are all in quotation marks, want to earn a philanthropic return on their investment. Okay? There needs to be a philanthropic ROI. And I am sent to trainings on how to pitch what the philanthropic ROI is to potential donors. So something's afoot here. Something very interesting is going on in the, the traditional <coughs> relations of, of philanthropy as we've understood them to date, at least um, in the modern university. I'm going to just put that on the table for now and go to this, um, this original question that framed the discussion, the one that, that Laura um, is wanting us to replace with some other questions. How is bad money made good? Um, for me, that opens up the more general question of how any money is redeemed and how any money is redeemed in the literal sense. Um, I think of the practices and infrastructures of redemption, things like notarization, right, signing the back of a note, um, things like the check clearance system, things like the Visa or MasterCard network. Um, these infrastructures, these transits, um, transit mechanisms, switches and channels um, that carry money from A to B um, so that its value can be redeemed, either by another person or for a thing or whatever. Um, now, this, the question of, of making bad money good, that, that moral sense of redemption, asks something different. It asks not just how money is redeemed in the infrastructural sense, um, but in the infrastructure, in the channel, in the transfer, and I kind of imagine there's money, and I'm sending you money or something, and there's a tube it's going through, and it pops it at the other end. In that tube, can it itself be transformed? Um, can there be a transformation in state um, of that money? 
Um, now, we, there are infrastructures out there, I've studied some of them in my prior life, um, that are channels precisely for transforming the money along the way. Um, the word that we have for it is money laundering, right? Um, there are all kinds of techniques um, that usually involve things like complicated uh, trust, trust companies that involve offshore accounts, that involve things like bearer shares where there's an actual physical piece of paper that's a share in the company and it says this is owned by the bearer. Um, th those are mostly illegal now around the world for obvious reasons. But um, and those techniques, what they do ultimately um, is conceal the origin of the funds, right? conceal the, the person or entity from whom they originate. So in that sense, um, the infrastructures of redemption are infrastructures of, of concealment. Now, I, I didn't want to put my toe too deep into the, the waters of religion, but I started thinking about um, Christ the Redeemer, and there are Christ the Redeemer churches um, in the States and probably elsewhere. Um, and I got interested in what they have to say about themselves because in the way that they talk about the figure of Jesus, um, Jesus himself becomes um, a kind of transit or a vehicle um, whereby we achieve grace. Um, the way that it goes is that he basically paid it forward um, by sacrificing himself so that we then can be saved. And that got me thinking about how, how money after Graeber and others um, is itself this kind of paying forward, right? The settling of old debts that also results in the creation of new debts, new relations, um, Laura would probably say. So that, that's another little bundle. How is bad money made good? And, and let's think about those infrastructures, those, those transit practices. I focus on infrastructure, too, because, again, in my role as a university administrator, I keep wishing for that golden era of American philanthropy to come back again, because <laughs> um, I'm not feeling it right now. But, but that, of course, that golden era, um, and, you know, all dotted up and down the state of California, there are these wonderful little libraries built by Carnegie, right? Um, that golden era started with the robber barons, the robber barons who made their fortunes doing what? Building infrastructures, building the railroads, having the steel plants that enabled the, 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 the building out of the rail, having the coal, um, digging, you know, the coal mines and the factories that, that tempered that steel and literally laying the rails of the modern United States. Um, in, in one of my other lives where I was studying Islamic banking and finance, there's an interesting convergence um, with the, the robber barons of the 19th century cleansing their wealth by building um, uh, railroads and infrastructure, and that's that Islamic banking, too, had its origins in um, great oil-generated wealth. Um, when, uh, with the, the oil boom, um, you had folks who were then newly attuned to thinking about um, their responsibility in the world and their responsibility to their faith, um, starting to experiment with things that had been dropped in the early part of the 20th century around, around con uh, Islamic contracts not based on interest, picking them up again, revivifying them in the 70s and 80s after the the, the boom of, in oil wealth. So uh, I want to um, leave you here with a question. 
And that's um, if that golden age of American philanthropy and if things like Islamic banking and finance had that origin point in um, the building out of infrastructure and the great fortunes that were raised through the building of infrastructure, I want to ask um, where do we think philanthropy might be going as we have new uh, masters of the universe, so to speak, laying the infrastructures for the 21st century. And I kind of got, in, got into a little reverie thinking, you know, we are told data is the new oil, right? So if data is the new oil, who are the people <coughs> building the infrastructures for the data? And, and what are their philanthropic orientations and agendas. Um, in the interest of disclosure, the institute that I direct is funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And um, uh, Bill Gates and the Omidyar Foundation and others like it that are coming out of this new explosion of wealth um, are the very people who are promoting this idea of a philanthropic return on investment. So um, I wonder if these sort of new infrastructures are also bringing with them new ideas about uh, there never being a gift that's just given, but a gift where one expects a return. Now, as an anthropologist, I think, oh, okay, that's actually how it goes. But then I think, well, uh-oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Is that really where I want that to go? Um, thanks. Thank you, Bill. Um, that, that very helpfully um, leads me to the question that I was wanting to try and ask, and you've given me the perfect in. Um, and perhaps I just need to talk a little bit about, about this question before I uh, give it over to you. Um, first of all, in Christian theology, just for a moment to do Christian theology, um, it's not money that's redeemed, it's people that's redeemed. Um, and I think that was emphasised. And the other thing, of course, is there's not one, there's multiple theories of redemption. And one of the things that interested me uh, fairly recently, especially when Easter was going on, and that there was, um, at that time, as there still is, a debate about Greek debt between Germany and, and Greece, I was very interested in the way in which um, the uh, theories of redemption associated with Greece and with Germany are, are extremely different and in some way track their attitudes to this debate, because... I mean, if you think of, of Germany as a country that's been very much shaped by the Lutheran reform tradition and Angela Merkel's um, dad was a Lutheran clergyman, what you get there is the idea, the thumbnail sketch of what redemption looks like there is it happens on the cross, it's payback. So what happens, we've done something wrong uh, as human beings, this is the model of redemption, we have to pay it back and it gets paid back by Jesus on the cross. It's a payback model. And that's a payback model you get with Anselm and Luther and all that, and it's all about the cross. For Greek theology, for, uh, for Orthodox theology, that's heresy. That particular way of looking at redemption is absolute heresy. Heresy, uh, the redemption doesn't happen on the cross, it happens with the resurrection. It happens, and that's a free gift, and that's forgiveness. That's not something that happens on the cross with this payback model. It's something that gets forgiven. And I suddenly, there was suddenly, as I was listening to the debate between Greece and Germany, I realised that I was also listening, on some level, to a theological debate about the nature of redemption. Is redemption payback? You borrowed a lot of money, you've got to pay it back. Or is redemption uh, something like forgiveness, which is you borrowed a lot of money, 
we're going to say, you didn't borrow it, we're going to, we're going to forgive you. And there's a different, so there are very, very different models of redemption that track these, and that's, it's, it's not unrelated to what you're talking about, gift, i.e. the Greek idea, that, 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 and the stuff that has deliverables, that, that has some sort of return on it, that's a, a tit-for-tat arrangement. That, 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 that's terrific and, um, and, and very helpful for thinking through this kind of thing because I myself get stuck on this stuff and have, you know, kind of bastardized Catholic upbringing, right? Um, and, you know, but, but I think about, I, I keep going back to the, um, the relationship between the theological questions and the act of redeeming a note where, because when you do sign over the note, in effect, you're saying the debt is now over. So, you know, in, in a sense, it's not that the debt is... Well, the debt is forgiven, right? I mean, it's, it's a kind of, the payback is just the, the flip side of the, the forgiving of the debt, um, at least with, with a bill of exchange or something. Um, but I do think it's fascinating to think about that moment of resurrection as the, the free return. But then it makes me want to ask, like, well, what happened next, <laughs> right? Like, what did Jesus do yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> after that, right? Because um, we don't, you know, that, that, that then is sort of this, this beautiful kind of open-endedness to the story um, that, at least in some variants of Christianity, propel, you know, propel humankind forward for, forever, blah, 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 on a quest that bends toward justice, to quote another person. David, you've, you've written on the relationship oh, between yeah. these things yeah. quite a lot, haven't Yeah, you? it's interesting you're, you're, you're mentioning Luther because actually that was the sort of key issue on which he broke over the peasant revolt in, in 1525, um, where he said, you know, because a lot of people started saying, well, if we take the, the Bible literally, um, you're not supposed to call back a debt. It's supposed to, it should be up to the debtor whether to return it or not. I mean, Jesus does specifically say that. Um, and and, um, and, and Luther came around pretty hard saying, yes, that is true, but of the ultimate standard of how humans should behave, but only Jesus was capable of such behavior. Nobody else should be held to it. People should pay what they owe. It's okay. We need the sword to threaten people with violence unless they do. Yeah. So, so that was like, you know, the, the breaking issue, like where he turned, um, you know, against the sort of radicalization of his message. It was exactly at that point. Yeah. And, and the notion of redemption itself is, is incredibly, strangely ambiguous. Because, I mean, I, I, the notion seems to be redeeming a captive if, if you're being held, if you're a debt peon, for example, uh, being held for somebody else's debt and they pay, finally pay it back and get freed. But the, the message that seems to be behind it, yeah, why is it possible? Like that? Uh, oh, there we go. Good. No? <laughs> I'll just ignore it. Oh, um, but, you know, so is it actually paying back, which is the literal meaning, or is it cancellation? Because there is the great tradition of debt cancellations. Um, that, jubilee. Right, the jubilee. Um, but it, and, and I always point out the first recorded word for freedom, you know, in any human language, which is just the first language to happen to be written down, uh, was Sumerian, uh, amargi, which literally means return to mother. Uh, and the reason why is uh, every new king pretty much would declare a uh, uh, effective, effectively a jubilee, a de- general debt cancellation. And, and one thing that would mean was not um, all the people whose children um, had been taken off as debt peons got to go home. Um, so they got to go back to mom. Um, so, so 
and, and, and that was the sort of vision of freedom as return. Um, and, and that seemed to be the idea lurking behind the notion of redemption, is that the debts are canceled, you can go home, the captives are all freed. Um, so there's that ambiguity. Is it that you're paying it back, or is it that you're making the, the debt disappear entirely? I think it's yeah. I think it's very interesting to think about to move away from Christianity to think about how these things would look from from within Hinduism, which of course I would suggest is less of a salvation religion and is more this worldly focused. So in that kind of setting, the idea of redemption doesn't quite work, you know. And so um, so you have practices within Hinduism in which you can pass on your sins through the medium of giving a gift to a Brahmin. Um, and that then purifies you and, and sort of removes the sin. But it's all centered on that transaction in that moment rather than on a kind of deferred moment of redemption mm. or, a, or a sort of original moment of redemption in relation to Jesus's death on the cross. So there's a different temporal structure there that then has different moral implications, I think, within the presence. And I can see that with the shipyard workers that I Mm. work among, that they're much more focused on the quality of the social relations in the present than in some deferred moral effect. Hmm. Could I ask then, and then then the Brahmin does what? Uh, That's the Mm. the problem, because the Brahmin has to absorb and eats and acquires and continues to acquire the sins of of the people who've given him the, the gift. That can be good. <laughs> there's a very, there's a very interesting uh, parallel to what you know what happens next with your saying, and that is, I'm sorry, this is really anybody got any ideas about how to stop this damn noise? Mm-hmm. Um, I think if we sit back, at the, do we sit back? Oh, is that what it is? Okay, yeah, yeah. maybe. Well, oh no, that's. Can we? Do you think it's coming from one of them? We can just experiment. But oh wait, that helped. Oh, cool. That's all right. That's better. Can people hear when we do this? This, this seems to be better. Very good. Um, uh, one, one of the interesting, this worldly, uh, ties in both of your uh, things, would be something about the Jubilee in, in, the, in the Hebrew scriptures. And one of the things that interests me about the Jubilee, that um, you know, every 49 years or whatever it is, that, 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 that you, know, you don't use the land and you, you pay back the debts and so forth. And... Um, for, for, for thousands of years in Jewish theology, um, people have said that really only counts in the land of Israel. Uh, only, only is it going to count if you're in the land of Israel. Now, very interestingly, of course, when Jews acquired the land of Israel again, okay, they're in the land, then they're faced with this problem, which is, what do you do? Now, this, this suddenly became, and there was very, very interesting, when the Shemitah year comes around, which is this year, which is this year, which is, this is, this is the Shemitah year, which started uh, at, at last uh, New Year, September. The seven or the 49? Um, it, it's, it's a, um, uh, you're supposed to not grow any... Uh, grown any, uh, food in Israel or, and, uh, and you're uh, paying back your debts and so forth but there was an extraordinarily complex uh, caveats that were discovered uh, early on uh, that, that actually meant that people didn't have to do this and that's a very interesting thing with, when it comes to religion especially the sort of this worldly forms is that if they have that sort of paying back somehow there's, there's often a way of, yeah. there's a way of getting around it yeah. Mm. Well, yeah, the story I was heard is that it was Rabbi Hillel came up with uh, yeah. something where you can write a little thing in the contract saying this particular loan is exempt from the Jubilee loan. Hetty Makira. Yeah, yeah. Hetty Makira. Right, which of course then everybody does that. Yeah. 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 
mean, nobody's going to sign one without that. Yeah. There, there it goes. Um, yeah. Yeah. The question I always had about the Hindu um, scriptures, I'm, it's very interesting that there's the whole idea of the sort of fundamental existential debts, um, which are in the Brahmanas, which are differently stated. Actually, the, early, the one everybody cites now, there is, you know, everybody is born with a debt to the gods or to the um, your your fathers and um, to uh, oh yeah, and to the sages um, to uh, to learn wisdom. And and but there's like she originally a fourth one to humanity as a whole, and you pay back the gods through sacrifice and ultimately death uh, you pay back the um, you, you pay back the sages by becoming wise you pay back the, your parents by becoming a, a, a parent and you pay back straight, uh, your debt to humanity by, by hospitality to strangers uh, and it's interesting the last one gets lost and uh, there's a second one that doesn't have that and that one gets lost in, in a lot of the versions people repeat nowadays because it became kind of inconvenient um, uh, Oh, uh, in the Middle Ages, I think. But but um, the, the the my reading, I don't know if this is right, but it suddenly occurred to me that that you know they might this idea you know it's kind of an appealing idea that, that we all owe, our lives are a debt we owe to the gods. And actually, it was you see an identical thing. Some uh, Simonides, uh, the Greek poet, says the same thing. It's quoted in the Republic, um, and um, so it was a common idea floating around at the time. But I always thought that the ultimate message was to subvert that. You know, there's this idea: okay, you owe your life to the gods when you kill cows. On cows today, um, you're really just paying the interest, and eventually the principal is yourself. Um, and um, but you know, the, all the other examples seem to subvert that because you, how do you pay back your fathers not by giving them something, but by becoming a father? How do you pay back sages basically by learning wisdom, becoming as close as you can to becoming a sage? How do you pay back humanity by being humane? Um, so it's sort of a, what would the equivalent of that be? Well, you're not going to become a god, um, but you know, if 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 the, so, it occurred to me the idea. Well, maybe yeah, actually, some some early sacrificial mm-hmm. can, yeah. Um, but. Um, yeah, the, 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 in a sense, uh, it struck me that, that you, could, you could do a reading of this saying, all right, what we're really saying here is that um, if the gods are the cosmos and your life is um, a debt you owe to the cosmos, well, that means how do you owe a debt? A debt is a business transaction between equals. How do you owe a debt between yourself and everything that ever existed, including yourself? So it's only by realizing that, you know, that you're actually... That sounds like yeah. modern finance to me, though, doesn't it? That's why ideas like debt to nature strike me as a little, you know, sketchy. Um, because it assumes that you're not nature. Yeah. There is something yeah. very kind of subversive within, within mm. Hindu ritual mm. practices, which is the kind of structure of popular Hindu ritual practices is that that with the sacrifice, what you're doing is you're giving life mm. to the image. You're drawing life mm-hmm. into the image first. And the community itself can only give life to the image. Mm. So it's not that you owe an ultimate debt to the cosmos that you're repaying through that sacrifice. It's that you are creating that those transactions ah. of life. Mm. So it, it yeah. contains this sort of emphasis on the ability of humans and gods in mm. collaboration to produce the transactions of okay, life. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, well, it's, and it's sort of a, a, almost like a, a door that opens but then closes, but you know that you can open it you again open later. It again. Right. Yeah. Right. It's not that closing the door is always just slam the door shut end of that. Yeah. But, right. Well, well I, I mean, the way I took it, it was a sort of Sort of, you could take it in the mystical direction and just say, you realize that the debt is absurd, so therefore the debt disappears. You know, you become the thing. Which, you know, in the same way, you become a parent, you become a saint. Can I take it back to the sort of the, 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 the sort of before we throw it open? Just, just, just to say something for the question. 
Okay, which I, I share your scepticism about some of the way this question is framed. But nonetheless, there's an instinct that's there that, that it, it does, it does hit something. And I just want to give the best case for what it hits. Mm. Um, now, CSR is the worst case. I, I, I mean, we're all nodding along to the, to, you know, um, to, to, to giving money to the Royal Opera House to make your Barclays a better, uh, morally better. I, I understand that. But I once went to a, um, a rather, a rather moving, strangely moving, and I, I'm trying to work out why it was moving. Meditation by a friend of mine uh, called Lucy Winkett, who's a vicar up in um, St James's Piccadilly, and she got out a ten pound note, and she. Did this sort of this study, and maybe someone's done it before. Maybe she needed it uh, as an idea. But she she got out this thing, and she goes, "Think about what this money's been used for before. Mm. It might have been used to pay prostitutes. It might have been used as as gun money. It might have been used rolled up to coke. You know, whatever this money's been used for. It's been used for a whole load of things and so forth. And and we just you know we, we sat there and thought about that as sort of good meditative people. And then we said, and then the sort of next question was, now what are we going to do with it? Now there was a sort of there was a power to that meditation. Which, which you sort of, and which is there in the question, which I sort of, even though I agree with you, I feel the power of that meditation. Mm. Do you understand that? How do we give? How do we articulate what that power is? Maybe, the, maybe people don't share it, but um, there was something about that. I mean, in, in part, I think it is because for us, the object is concretizing those relations. Right, we're, we're in that moment of reflection. We're using it to kind of concretize the the relations that may have come before, so that then we can think about the ones that we then make with it. And there's, you know, there's terrific sociologists who study this kind of thing among gamblers and prostitutes, right, and drug dealers. What do they do with the the money that they earn from those activities? And you know, it, it varies, of course, but some people sequester it and only use it for other bad things. So prostitution money, money is for my drugs. But other people <laughs> purify it. Prostitution money goes to my daughter so that I can get her, mm. you know, the education I never had or whatever. Um, mm. But it is that the, 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 the object there crystallizes those, those, those trajectories and relations um, for the what comes next. And I think that, you know, for me, that what comes next question is always the really, really hard one. Um, and it's also often foreclosed, right? I mean, just as a, a very quick thing, on your own donor wall down the hall, wherever it was, the other building, um, the, in the, the very first donors listed, I thought, aha, it's great. It's, you know, Tata Steel and, like, BP. But then it's anonymous, right? And I had this kind of, like, oh, kind of crestfallen thing because that is, that is a thing that then blocks the, the imagination. Uh, and, and, and it's delightful. Like, how delightful that anonymous is one of the first donors recognized on your on the wall yeah i mean it's interesting the meditation too though because um you think about you know, what it takes to think about you know where where this money has been because it makes you realize how, how little people think about it normally um i actually saw statistics that something like 83 percent of all colds are actually passed through money uh, and, and you think about it, it makes perfect sense because like how many things do you like cold in your hand that have been held by thousands of other people you know you won't touch the banister on the tube you know when you're going down there or, um but you will touch this stuff that you know god knows who's been like, like pawing at well, me really you all your about <laughs> So you don't actually think about it normally. You think of this as this sort of antiseptic stuff because, you know, because it, it exists to erase history. And it exists to erase history because of its value is 
entirely not based on its history. The history doesn't affect the value in any way, unlike almost anything else you could possibly have. I mean, basically, you have to have a huge amount of money before the history is known. It has to be the Lever Home Foundation, old money, or some fund, or something like that. And then, you know, uh, uh, so it becomes money that kind of reproduces itself in some way, capital, essentially. And then, you know, the history can be known. But otherwise, the value of history, you know, it's exactly the opposite of, of say, a Kula heirloom or a lot of things that, you know, where it's, it's precisely the, the history which becomes the value. In this case, you know, it's the degree to which money is all the same and therefore generic and therefore historyless, which is what is valuable about it. The money, what the meditation does is it's making that money visible as a form of social energetics, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. what it does. Um, but I, do, I, I know that we may all agree in this room that CSR is a bad thing, but I don't think we can assume that the rest of the world does. And, and I think actually there is a sort of contemporary shift away from older forms of philanthropy, you know, your robber, robber barons, to these new forms of philanthropy, which are, you know, much, much more problematic because they have a kind of profit motive built into them. They're not them really well. philanthropy. They're not really so, yeah. philanthropy at all. And, and this mm. is what you're experiencing right. with, with, your, with your donors, that they expect a return, even if that's a moral return that's modelled on a profit relationship. Um, and I think what's interesting about Christianity, what's always been interesting about Christianity, is that it pushes back against that profit motive and has historic, you know, as David has written about, you know, since the Roman Empire, pushed back against that. So I think, you know, if there is a radical potential in Christianity, it's that. You know, it's in sort of the theology of people like uh, John Hughes, who talks about the ends of work not being utilitarianism, but being the kind of service to God. So. So I think there is a radical potential in Christianity, but it's not in that Christianity being used to cloak these false acts of philanthropy by personifying exactly. money. Perfect way to shift and focus, <laughs> I think. So um, what I'd like to do is... Uh, I'd quite like to take a few questions, and what I'd quite like to do is take a couple of time, and if you raise your hands or just indicate to do that, and I'm going to try and get around as many people as possible. At the back... Oh, wonderful. Sorry, I didn't realise that there will be a... Hi, uh, just a little question. Um, before redemption, obviously you have to sin, right? So I'm curious to see when did money become a sin in Christianity? Mm. Dr. Keith Postler, teaching in the Department of Statistics and external examiner in finance for postgraduates at the Birmingham City University. Um, this question, not only to the panel, but maybe specifically to Professor Maurer, um, would you consider the philanthropic ROI um, a colonization or an attempt to colonize um, the public debate such that rather than um, corporations appearing to be good, that the notion of this ROI is something neutral. We'll have, understand we'll have the three, question. Thank you. And one more here, so we'll... And then. Oh, thank you so much. I'm Maria Valander, a master's student in anthropology and development at LSE. And uh, you discussed a little bit about um, 
how money is now sort of digitally, and then also a bit about um, money in the past. But I was wondering to key in on how money has now been sort of shifted from being more uh, a tactile, from being a tactile and more material thing to being uh, information and data. And so, what does that different interaction with money and the shifting form of money mean for our imposition of faith onto um, economic transactions? Great questions. Um, thank you. Does anybody want to have a go with uh, who wants to have a go with one of those? <laughs> Bill, go on. Sure. I'm, 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 I want to know the answer to the first one, but I don't have it, and that's <laughs> for them. And um, the second oh, two are, fascin- are fascinating to me. Um, the, so so you're, you're wondering if um, philanthropic, the idea of philanthropic return on investment um, basically new- neutralizes, the, neutralizes the gift somehow. Um, that had never occurred to me before. The way, the way that I've thought about it, and this may be wrong, mm-hmm. is I've thought about it as um, participating in the same kinds of discourses that delegitimate the collection of taxes, right? That, that um, in, and I don't know if this happens here, but in the States, there's a prominent discourse on the right that um, if, I pay, if I pay taxes, I should be actually getting something in return. And of course, people are getting tons of things in return all the time. You know, the country-based sort of works. You know, taxes are the prices we, we pay for a civilized society, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I had sort of seen the philanthropic ROI as coming from the same space as, as that, as that um, there's no free lunch and there needs to be some, some something. Um, but the, the suggestion that, um, that, that the notion of return on investment is sort of doing some work on philanthropy that, that morally neutralizes it um, is something that I'll have to think about and is really quite interesting. Um, on the, the, the shift to kind of informational money or um, you know, immaterial money, um, this is something that um, in the, the work that I do through this institute, we pay quite a lot of attention to because we're, we find around the world as um, mobile phone-based money transfer services come to town, in some instances... Um, there's a whole discourse around a, a new discourse around money as invisible, um, which allows people to um, set up other relationships that are concealed from their other. I mean, that allows men to cheat on their wives, right? I'm trying to like say that it's something other than that, but that's what it allows them to do. Um, interestingly, there are um, religious figures who in who have become really prominent either in saying that um, mobile money is bad for that reason, or in saying mobile money is terrific because it can facilitate um, contributions to my church, right? Um, at the same time, there are other, other um, religious figures who say that the, very, the tangibility of money is essential to the act of almsgiving, that you need to touch and feel it for it to really be the real gift, um, which is kind of interesting. That, I mean, I, I might, if I had time, wrap that back around again to the philanthropic ROI thing, where, you know, what these people who want philanthropic return want is to be able to, to tangibly touch and, and feel something um, that comes back to them somehow. Um, but that might be for a longer conversation. Or does this 
impinge on your... Yes. Um, I mean, I, I was quite interested in this question of when Christianity started to see money as associated with sin, but I wanted to kind of look at it in, in more in the contemporary moment, which is the question of, you know, what money in the present counts as bad money and what money counts as bad money for different religious, in different religious contexts and different public contexts. So why is it that you know, the money produced from you know, the trading of Greek sovereign debt bonds is considered good money, whereas you know, oil money or blood diamond money is considered bad money? And I would be interested in looking at the kind of contemporary scene of ethical debate around that, both inside and outside of religions. Mm. I mean, just before I... I mean, I think... I can do that, yeah. Go on, then. Go on. No, no, no. You, no, no. you're the man. Oh, no, no. no. Well, I, I was going to... I was going to well, I would respond to your question. I mean, I'm interested in these, all these three questions, but if, if I might just respond to that one. I mean, so in the Hebrew Scriptures, mm. the right use of money is... If you count up all the references, it's the number one moral issue. And, and it's, uh, it's, it's more important, way more important than sex, way more important than anything else. It, but that's actually a justice issue. It's entirely related to you know, how you deal with a stranger, how you deal with... That, that would be... Now, that gets... That's something that I would want to endorse. And I would, that gets associated, I think, uh, particularly with Christianity's other worldliness. Uh, as that happens, as you know, Christians go into the desert, reject the world, the world is bad, and so forth. And money, and particularly charging interest and those sorts of things, become one of the great markers of this worldly sin. And there's a shift that goes from sort of justice-based thinking to a sort of sin-based thinking. And then, of course, for Christians, because money becomes tainted, um, we can't we can't touch it, so we get juice to do it for us, with, with, and, and then that becomes a paradox because Jews become moneylenders and hated for money, and so it all gets bound up with this history of Christian anti-Semitism, which is incredibly complicated and horrible. But I think originally, um, I would want to say that the, sort of the first stuff about money and morality is, is a sort of legitimate way of trying to talk about justice and the right use of money and the, you know, the way in which the way, way in which money is redistributed and distributed in society. Yeah. Is it true, as I think I read somewhere that, that um, Jesus has 47 quotes about m- money and one about sex. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really much more concerned. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I once heard a brilliant sermon at the beginning of a lesbian and gay Christian week where someone got up and he said, uh, and nobody knew what he was talking about, wonderful preacher, and he said, um, the Old Testament against it, the New Testament's against it, successive church uh, councils of the church have condemned it. And everybody's thinking, oh dear, what is he going to say? What is he going to say? He said, that's bad news for Bible. Yeah, I mean, just in terms of the general background, um, I mean, it, originally it's not so much um, money as, as debt, because in a lot of languages, the word for debt and the word for sin are the same thing. Um, uh, I, I believe it's true in Aramaic, it's definitely true in Sanskrit, um, but, uh, and a lot of Indo European languages as well. However, you know, money and debt were also the same thing. 
today because when you have credit systems, the credit systems come before cash. Um, you know, there's credit and debt, and that's essentially all monies are social uh, relations. And you know, one person's honor is another person's sin, but paying back debts is an honorable thing. So, so it's all about um, this sort of moral calculus. Um, and the two, but but you know, when you get like the the widespread use of actual physical money in transactions, essentially, you know, in China, India, and and the Eastern Mediterranean, you get the same thing happening almost exactly the same time, um, but apparently unbeknownst to one another. Um, which and, and it's essentially the same cycle, which is that, that you have the rise of professional armies. And the big problem in the ancient world is how you feed your army, because they're just going to eat everything in the vicinity very quickly. So either you have to keep them moving all the time, or you have to set up some system to provision them, and that takes huge numbers of people. So they came up with this clever idea. They basically said, um, it, you know, again, kingdoms in three different places. Uh, they said, well, these guys are carrying around lots of loot and gold and silver and stuff like that. You know, it's easy and portable. Why don't I just take that loot, stamp my picture on it, give it to the troops, and then say everybody in the kingdom has to give me one back again. Um, suddenly, bam, you just employed your entire population feeding the soldiers. Uh, but, but for obvious reasons, therefore, since, and, and this remains true for much of history, if you look at the Roman Empire, like all the coins they find are either uh, in Italy itself or on the border, you know, where the legions were. Otherwise, people are still using credit arrangements. Um, and uh, still quite true today. I mean, yeah. we, we borrow money to go to fight, don't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in, 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 in like, in, here in England, until the 1700s, 16, 1700s, um, you know, almost all transactions were on credit, and they'd have a reckoning, um, you know, every six months to a year, and everybody in the village would sort of cancel it out in a big circle and figure out who owed what to who and give them a pig or some cheese. or you know, Nobody used money, um, you know, because money was associated with the government soldiers, uh, sometimes the church, but um, sometimes they would take money in cash. But, but you know, but it, was, there was, it was like scary stuff because it was associated with violent people, you know, because if you think about it, like, if you are dealing with credit arrangements, who's the last? guy you'd ever want to extend credit to is a heavily armed thug who's only passing through. You know? <laughs> and uh, on the other hand, you know, he is going to have some little bits of like loot. You know? so, that's essential. so either way, it becomes associated with sin in, in, in different ways. It's very interesting. For, um, talking about your business about money being tangible or being sort of virtual, St. Francis of Assisi uh, um, uh, banned all his his monks from touching. He once found oh, yeah. someone touching money, and he made him put it in his teeth and stick it in a pile of shit. And that was wow. it. But even touching money and so forth. Who does monks also so, 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 Yeah, so it would be very interesting. Virtual money, but they'd be fine. Yeah, exactly. They'd <laughs> <laughs> be fine. It would be fine. Really interesting. So, question over there. One over there. Then gentlemen. And then... Um, my name is Kavita Kopas, no affiliation and living on £10 a week for the last 10 years of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to touch on the sort of symbolic nature of money because rather than just being a transactory thing, it's imbued with all this um, symbolism. So the possession of money at the moment seems to be quite unfashionable, sort of thinking about Piketty and that we need to tax the rich, rich more. So the shift seems to have been from not so much how the money has been acquired, but how are you going to use it? And if you're not using it, then that in itself has become a a bad thing. So I'd like the panel to comment on that. Um, And on the 
Um, I think one of the speakers mentioned something about how money could be could play a role in social justice or in the quality of human relationships. Um, I would like to say that the quality of my human relationships completely plummeted as soon as I didn't have a job because I was then, then seen as a less worthwhile person in society um, and that the only relationships that really mattered are the ones where money just didn't have any role to play. So that's just an observation. Gentlemen here. Um, that's a splendid observation. I, I just wanted to return us to Laura's first radical question, which was from your Hindu populace people, um, which is to question the way in which the money was first made, and to you said redistribute it or distribute it to. Um, to a change in the way that money is made. So there's another anti-austerity um, way of thinking about the, not redemption, but, uh, but, but a critique of money. And, and, the, and the person that that reminded me of as an anthropologist in the same department um, is, of course, Marcel Mousse in the last chapter of his book, The Gift, in which he basically sets out a program for his own politics, which is of syndicalism. So the question that, that arises, it seems to me, is does, do the various ways, of the religious ways or concealments of bad ways, imply what would be a good economy? Uh, a way of a good way of making money or of using money, um, and so you know what if it's it's if effectively a political economy question that is being raised as a more as the more radical one. Thank you very much. Um, one more. Hi, I'm Juliet. First of all, this is an amazing discussion. I absolutely love it. I did my BA in social anthropology here just over 10 years ago. I've just worked for a family foundation for three years. I want to talk to you about Liverhome Trust in the Congo. Um, <laughs> and I did my MSc in grant-making philanthropy and social investment at the Casperson School last year. So this topic is so appropriate. I'm really interested in your comments about um, America because at face value, America welcomes and is really, you know, at the front of philanthropy, and you guys are great, and we're very slow and doing it very quietly, and we're being terribly English and boring as shit. Um, I'm just interested as a panel whether you think philanthropy in the UK or in Western society should be welcomed and encouraged and acted upon, or we should be very cautious, and actually there should be more philosophical, anthropological debate about actually its true value, or whether this is just an added bonus... And it's good that it's happening. Don't really care how it's happening, but at least it's happening. Or whether it should just be paused. Bill, seeing as you've been working on that, that probably is one, one for you to start with. Well, I don't know if I can address what I think about. Well, I, 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 I would say England, be very cautious <laughs> about that. Um, you, you know, there's a whole bunch of things going on um, in, in your question and in the world of philanthropy right now. Um, and there are certainly debates within the, the community of wealth managers who are trying to direct people um, to, to put their money in a place where it will, where it will do good or will um, 
have a legacy uh, that people will stand you know behind um, and among the, the the wealthy and extremely wealthy who have this money um, that that isn't being used um, and who who sort of are concerned about that or or um, want to think about what to do with it um, in the United States philanthropy is completely intertwined with um, our policies around tax collection um, Right? I mean, that's a huge thing where it's just a write-off, right? Um, we have an entire division within my university um, that focuses on estate planning. Um, and the, the pitch is basically, you're going to owe a huge tax obligation. Um, let us help you figure that out, <laughs> right? Let us help you make that easier for you. And, and, and you know, here I am stuck in this position as a fundraiser, being very much of two minds about that. Um, I would absolutely love for people to will their money to my university. At the same time, that means it's not going to pay taxes for all the really bad things the government does, but also all the really good things that the government does that are essential for a whole lot of things to work. Um, and and I, I am kind of invested a little bit in stuff working. Um, like I like that the water comes out and it's clean and I can drink it and that you know I can drive over the road sort of for the most part. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, I came up with two things, but um, but 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 there is a sort of um, something to be to be cautious about. It is fascinating to me, um, not not so much the, the the super wealthy and how they think about this, but those those estate managers and how they try to direct people toward quote unquote meaningful things. Um, and I've seen that play out a lot in my day job, and I can talk to you about it afterwards. It's fascinating. Ooh, we want to talk about it now, don't we? Talk about it afterwards. It always makes me, it always makes me suspicious and interested. <laughs> yes, I'm going to start with Stefan's question, which was really the question of, you know, what, what would a good economy be and what, from all of that we've been saying and from my shipyard workers, what, I'm going to start really with what my shipyard workers would think a good economy would be. And they, what they do is they suggest that a good economy would be one that would allow them to sustain the life of their household and their community. So it's quite close to Marx's understanding of it. And what they do is they project upwards the needs of the household economy or the oikos onto the whole public economy and suggest that we should measure the public economy um, as to the extent to which it supports the household economy. And I think this is a very interesting question to ask ourselves, you know, in Britain as well, about, you know, to what extent are public policies allowing the poorest in our society to sustain their household economies? What kinds of choices, how, you know, to speak to the question over here, you know, why is it that when you start to work, you feel less free than when you're not working? You know, what, what is that telling you about the economic relations that we live, live in and what they're doing to your most integral, authentic relations? So for me, the question about philanthropy and whether we should do you know, philanthropy or not would be, you know, where has the money come from? What kinds of social evils has it caused? How do those relate to the fate of you know, families and households? And how then do we redistribute it to make those relations fairer? Uh, yeah, and, and I mean, one of the big problems that we have is that the discourse, that the conventional discourse about money, which 
you know, makes these kind of discussions possible is, is, is actually fundamentally incorrect. Um, that is to say, we have this idea that money, you know, there's sort of this fixed sum of money, we don't quite know where it comes from, and then it has to be distributed in different ways, and if some people are holding it back, the government doesn't have it, you know, it goes from one place to another. And, um, and, and um, you know, in fact, it, almost all economic debate, and we're, we're holding this on the day of elections, whereby I even have incredibly intelligent students of mine writing to me saying, oh, but like, won't there be deficits which will create a crowding out? Or, you know, I mean, um, you know, like going with this economic discourse, which almost no economist who isn't paid to believe this actually believes. Um, you know, the Bank of England has now announced, by the way, the entire discourse of money creation used by politicians is entirely wrong. Not that it changed the way they talk about it. Um, and in fact, money is created by making How is it wrong? Tell me I was about to say. Yeah, no, money is created by making loans. Um, you know, rather than the bank having money, which it then loans to you. Um, you know, so everybody has this idea that this is some grandma's savings, and if I default, you know, she's going to lose everything. Um, no, actually, money is created by the act of making the loans. Or what, ninety-two percent of money? Um, the rest is caused by government debt. You know, that's the big joke about government deficits. Like, if, if there were no government deficits, well, there would be no money. Um, you know, money is circulating government debt. Um, that's why you know the, the money actually says on it. You know, here's here's the queen. She's saying, "I promise to pay the bearer the sum of five pounds." Um, you know, it's not five pounds. It's a promise by the queen to pay you five pounds, which is why you can use it to pay your debt to her, which is taxes. Um, so the two debts cancel each other out. Um, so you know, so money doesn't work at all like people say. So this sort of so the entire rhetoric of money sort of moving around and being there like having stuff cling to it or not is, 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 is actually has almost nothing to do with how money ever worked really, but certainly works now. Um, which is why you know there has to be some way, way you know so the entire economic discourse that people are having you know which is the basis of people's decisions in the election is it's not true it's, it's it, it, you know but some it's, and that's true of the left and the right this whole like these guys aren't paying their taxes well yeah that's true but it's also true that the government doesn't actually fund itself through taxes I mean taxes are really a way of making money that that's issued indirectly through central banks valuable because it, you need it to pay taxes but anyway. Um, so the, the, so I think that we need to like figure out some way, my idea for the redemption of money, therefore, is to figure out some way to like break out of this mold by like radically rethinking. That's why I thought a jubilee, you know, in my book I suggested would be useful. But I, I've recently, you know, come more and more close to the people arguing for, for basic citizens' income, you know, because the, the attachment of money to work um, it, as, 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 as incredibly pernicious. And a lot of people have been saying, you know, well, maybe the best way to make us rethink our relation to money is simply to, I mean, you know, quantitative easing. Uh, someone pointed out right now the money they're printing um, is enough to give 179 euros a month to every individual in Europe. Why don't they just do that? without <laughs> much stimulus and buying bonds um, and you know basically raising the price of assets that are mainly held by rich people which is what and hoping the rich people then lend it to somebody which they don't usually do um, maybe five six percent um, but but um, yeah so, so so I think that that you know some sort of radical means of, of reimagining this entire situation would be really useful because like you know the entire discourse is kind of like broken record saying the same thing over and over again and insofar as it was ever true um, it's certainly not true now 
So do I get from... So I've got this... I'm afraid I've got this irritating phrase in my head from both what you talk about work and what you talk about families, which is hard-working families, which we've all heard. We've all heard way, way, way too much about her. Do you know, I'm, I'm sure I saw a non-hard-working family in the election booth this morning. I should have reported them, actually. It'd be outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. But is, is there something... Oh, I'm is there something about the way in which... Um, I don't know how to formulate this question exactly right, but something like, um, you know, the, the, the current rhetoric is hard-working families are important because um, the way in which money works right. and the way in which the economy works means that they, that, that, that they make it all happen. But you're saying it's almost the other way around, yeah. which is to say yeah. that the Wait economy is structured just to make us into yeah. certain sorts of things that we value, i.e. hard-working families. Exactly, which is yeah. Which is it's the completely opposite of what we think it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in a way, like, like even Marx has read backwards, it's not a labor theory of value, it's a value theory of labor. You know, the purpose of value is to, like, like make us think that we're, we're, what what our work how important our work is and what kind of work is important and what kind of isn't so that some things aren't considered work and other things are. I mean, that's what money's actually doing. Uh, and we just need to radically rethink all of that, it seems to me. Um, and the best way to do it is to start uh, by radically rethinking what money actually is. So, you know, I've always felt that, like, we should just, like, give everybody a basic income and have them decide for themselves what they want to contribute to society because you know, they couldn't do much worse job than they are right now of distributing, you know, like like jobs to people. I mean, like at least 20% of people, I think, don't even think their jobs do anything. They're just doing it anyway because you're kind of set up in such a way that you're a bad person if you're not working all the time doing something you don't like. I suspect your donors aren't going to. I suspect your donors are uh, the but but I also, I mean, I, I sort of I sort of worry about going that that path a little bit too much, right? I mean, and then this, um, I think, comes to a, a difference between the two of us. Um, um, that again, we can talk about later. But uh, uh, let, let me let me give you just a couple of sort of moments of ways it could be otherwise, right? And a couple of moments of ways it could be otherwise could be represented by things like the alternative currency movements or time banking, right, or people who are kind of creating little tiny, sort of call them barter networks if you want, um, things where they're mainly about the provisioning of the household in a community, blah, 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 blah. Um, that's really great. Uh, it's also really a terrific way to create an exclusionary community where, like, people not like us don't get to come. And that's, that's, well, that's when why I'm I, not endorsing them. Yeah, no, yeah, 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 right, right. So <laughs> yeah. there, there's that. Yeah. But uh, another moment that, that, um, that I was just thinking about uh, when you were talking is that um, in the United States, right around the time of the War of 1812, mm -hmm. um, when there, there wasn't any kind of central bank, there, the currency hadn't been unified, blah, 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 um, this thing kind of got created, and I think it was somewhere in Massachusetts or Connecticut, that was called the Bank of Mutual Redemption. And it was a settlement bank that some of the other banks all joined and belonged to to precisely do this business of reckoning with each other's accounts with no, with no sort of physical stuff of money, just the ledger books. Um, and what a wonderful idea, right? A, a sort of mutual redemption that maybe kind of is a whole other way of thinking about this topic of money and this redemption. Cool, that goes quite much, Christian. And then we get back to most. Let's get the last three questions. I've got three questions here. Now this is like everybody's in mind. Oh, four questions, because I did say this to him, sorry. So there's two over here. This person here. I think we might not have time for others, because we're five minutes. It's the... Money's redemption is a uh, permanent, you say, query in India particularly. They talk about the uh, moksha, nirvana, uh, Buddha, 
But when you see in the practice, you see there, uh, the evasion of the tax Indian, and you were mentioning about the Indian company's tax, the, some of the people who made hell of a lot of money uh, to redeem, uh, they would build temples or uh, big, uh, uh, unlike you see the medical, you see all the, uh, there are some uh, charities, you see the people who have got a lot of money and set up the charity. question, sir. The question is, there is a paradox, you see, in this case. You amass fortune and then you seek uh, redemption. I didn't hear the question more, but um, you got it. Um, ben Hughes, I'm from the Community Development Finance Association, so we're the trade body for ethical local finance providers. I think, Bill, you mentioned systems for moving money around and I guess if we look at the main system which is banks they are notoriously bad at serving the entirety of the population and so I guess my question is thinking about money, bad money, is access or lack of access to money in itself a determinant as to whether money is good or bad? And final question here in the middle. Um, thank you very much. Um, my question is kind of childishly simple, but um, also impossible. It's to do with um, climate change and climate change. Um, in the wake of having an unsustainable planet, how do we have a sort of shift, a global shift in our mentality against so, so that, that, that was a question about climate change and capitalism and whether these two are, are consistent, uh, the issues of, of, of climate change, um, if that's what you heard. Um, so we've got, uh, we've got three minutes <laughs> before we finish to deal with these almost impossible things. Laura. Yes, I'd like to speak to the gentleman's question about this apparent paradox of amassing fortunes in India and then seeking redemption by founding temples. I think actually this isn't a paradox at all because what's being sought is actually not redemption but status. Right? and a sense of purity, a sense of purification. So it's very much within the logic of Hinduism as I've described it so far. Um, and I, you know, the question about sort of the relationship between global change, uh, climate change and, and capitalism and how we can bring about a global shift in mentality, I think this is probably the topic for another, another evening's talk. Yeah. But, um, but I, one, I know one thing for sure, that it can't happen through these CSR initiatives that are currently being developed by the UN and within India itself that have a very limited set of environmental goals. Do you want to have a response to one of those and then Bill? Um, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm good. You're good. <laughs> good. The, the access question is an interesting one. Is access to money a determinant of whether it's good or bad? Um, and, you know, it's, it's partly what does access then open up for people? Um, does it open up new sets of relations the way that Laura was talking, or does it immediately suture them into the kind of closed game and closed mentality that, that David is, is alluding to? Um, I think that that's an open question, and I think that conversations like this hopefully help us um, do a little bit better at an answer. 
I'd like to say something to the question about climate change and uh, capitalism. And there's the one word that we haven't mentioned that we could talk about mm -hmm. a lot when it comes to uh, capitalism, which is, of course, the sort of damnable com complex word growth, which we're all supposed to believe in. It's mm -hmm. supposed to be terribly important. Um, but it seems to be rather uh, complicated when related to, you know, we're all supposed to grow all the time, everything's supposed to be growing, the economy's supposed to be growing, that's supposed to be the great thing, even the left talks approvingly of growth, but of course growth is problematic, uh, to say the least, when it comes to recognising that we're on a finite planet uh, with finite resources, and how those two things are consistent is, is, I think, one of the great challenges of our day, the great challenge of our day. Um, Look, it's eight o'clock. Uh, I know there's lots of people who haven't asked questions, and I apologise for not being against around as, as uh, all the people that wanted to do that. But um, would you would you join me in your appreciation of our panel? And <laughs>